WBZ original. The quickest way to start him is to be a total jerk. It's true. Yeah. Have a tantrum. Which Liam is in, far, Liam? Liam is incapable <laughs> of doing that. I, on the other hand, no. Yes, I, well, I. <laughs> no, no, no. We, no. Uh, should we get We're into this? Get should we tell the story? No, okay, we didn't no, let's start over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm recording. All right. <laughs> Welcome to Studio BZ. It is episode two of season two. Very exciting. Yeah. And welcome in, everybody. I'm Paula Evan. I'm Leah Martin. John Keller is off for Rosh Hashanah. Shana Tova Metaka uh, to John Keller. I hope he's enjoying with apples and honey, as, as, as most Jews do. That's right. I hope he is, and he'll be back soon. Jonathan Case, our producer, is with us here in the Studio BZ podcast studio. It's very lovely. Producer extraordinaire. Extraordinaire. Yes. And... Nobody cares. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Allison Dodek, our new social media... Media Maven from the newsroom up here taking. She's going to help us with social media promote this thing because I think we, we love put together this. a good prod, uh, product. Uh, welcome to WBC yeah. Allison. It's great to have you here. Liam loves having his picture taken while he's talking. It's true. It's part of <laughs> as we were saying. It's in my contract. It's in this contract. <laughs> we need as much Liam FaceTime as, as possible. Um, Liam, you had a talk with the surprise winner. Uh, Ayanna Presley. Ayanna Presley, the winner in the 7th Congressional District. Big upset Tuesday night over Mike Capuano. I talked with her about her reaction to the win, where she stands on some key issues for Democrats heading into the midterms, Medicare for All, ICE, Nancy Pelosi. So we talk about all of that and her first goals once she gets to Congress. John Keller found out why Jay Gonzalez thinks that he actually has a chance against Charlie Baker. And the question is, does he Mm -hmm. actually? Charlie Baker's notoriously high approval ratings would seem to intimidate most opponents. Um, Most popular governor in the country, particularly because he's a Republican in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So we'll have John Keller's conversation with Jay Gonzalez. And then we're also going to talk about, is Boston uncool? Where is the arts and music scene here? John Keller talks with the co-founder of Boston Hassel and the Brain Arts Organization, Dan Shea, Mm. who makes the case that the art scene in Boston has diminished over time. And he gets into some of the interesting reasons why and what he thinks the city of Boston can do to promote the art scene here. Liam, we talked and even mentioned in the podcast last week, it was very, very interesting that Within seconds of winning in New York, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez mentioned the name Ayanna Presley. And Ayanna Presley, who most name. people probably said, "Who is that?" Right, Boston City Councilor, originally from Chicago, moved here to attend Boston University when she was when she was younger. Has been here pretty much ever since. And she upset Mike Capuano, the 20-year incumbent, last Tuesday night. She won by 17 percentage points. It wasn't like she barely eked this thing out. Right. Which we said, by the way, never an easy thing to do, to beat such a long-term incumbent. Not to beat any incumbent. And then especially in a primary, it was the day after Labor Day. How many people were really going to show up? Turnout in Boston was gigantic for Ayanna Presley. She immediately became a national story. CNN wanted to talk to her. MSNBC wanted to talk to her about why did she win and where does she stand on some of the key issues for Democrats heading into the midterms. And the fact that, like Ocasio-Cortez, she was able to win on a shoestring. She was able to wish she was way outspent by Mike Capuano, but she had the support of the grassroots organization within the left part of the Democratic Party. And this primary season, at least, that has been uh, especially yeah. in a district 
that is majority, minority, a very progressive district, she picked the right race to run. At and the she right was able time. To be Mac- so she is anticipated to be the first black woman in Congress from Massachusetts. Here is Liam's conversation with Ayanna Presley. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. Did you expect to win Tuesday night? You know, we were working hard. I was um, proud of what we had accomplished, of what we had built. This people-powered army and a movement of a thousand foot soldiers um, that we had just that weekend alone knocked 48,000 doors. That without corporate PAC money, we had raised a million dollars in grassroots donations. That we had one door, one voter at a time accomplish something tremendous whether we won the election or not. And so I, I thought we could win, but I was prepared to lose because I wasn't in denial about the odds that were stacked against us. There are so many theories about why you won. Yes. Why do you think you won? My message was one of more than just resisting Trump, but how do we improve the lives of people in this district? We don't have to put, um, our hope, our aspiration, our vision on a shelf, simply because we are in the minority as Democrats. I reject that Mm. notion. It was also a testament to um, a campaign that was run challenging conventional assumptions about who was a likely voter. We rewrote the math of who is a primary voter. Mm. And we successfully re-engaged people who were disillusioned with politics and had all but given up. And we were able to engage people who were participating for the first time. And that I'm very proud of. You said some of this is about generational change. There's been a lot of talk as well about the year of the woman. You have won. There's obviously in Massachusetts, Maura Healy, Elizabeth Warren, Laurie Trahan might win the third congressional district. Nationally, there are 263 women who have advanced to the generals in the House, the Senate, and governor's races. Is there something afoot here with women in U.S. politics? Well, the thing is, I think it's tempting to sort of think of it as a trend. But what I know and I saw this on the Boston City Council with the number of women that were elected there, is that fundamentally there are some things that are always true. And that is if you have a a message that is resonant, if you connect with people, if you put in the work and the sweat equity, and you demonstrate a strength of conviction, um, people will show up and people will be moved by that. And I think all of the women that are running throughout the country have demonstrated that. I also would add that when we sit on the Boston Commons after the sobering defeat of 2016, um, the thousands of us that came together at the Women's March, and we said then that that was not a moment, that we were ushering in a new movement. And we held signs that said, today we march, tomorrow we run. They just didn't believe us. Your first day in the U.S. House in January, what's your first goal? What's your first step? My first step, turn the lights on. <laughs> I've got a lot of work to do. I need to you know, build a team that's going to help me to implement this equity agenda that I developed um, with legislative proposal and, and ideas to uh, address these systemic inequalities and disparities in the 7th Congressional District. Um, a number one priority for me right now is doing everything possible to stop Kavanaugh. Uh, to be an obstructionist to that becoming a reality, to roll back the protections and freedoms of women when it comes to health care access. 
um, and uh, an abortion, which is a medical procedure and a legal right. And when I'm in Washington, I look forward to leading on issues of gun violence prevention, criminal justice reform, ensuring that federal investment in the Massachusetts Seventh is equitably distributed to address these transit inequities and access to affordable housing, um, environmental justice, and, and a host of other issues. Um, simply because I'm running for Congress, my priorities have not changed, um, or now that I've been elected, mm-hmm. um, they remain the same, and I'm excited to get the work. A lot of people are were waking up Wednesday, even in the 7th Congressional, and saying, I need to now learn where Ayanna Presley stands on certain issues. So I want to walk through a few of them. ICE. Where do you stand on ICE? Well, throughout the campaign, I've called for the abolishing of ICE. Um, I'm not someone that cavalierly arrives at any decision to um, abolish an agency, but this is a rogue agency that has been um, plagued by um, allegations of abuse um, for two administrations. We hit a watershed moment uh, when children are being pulled from the arms of their mothers. That is no longer an agency that can be reformed from the inside out. I support uh, Rep. Pocan's legislation uh, to not only do an investigation into the abuses of ICE, but also to figure out how to decentralize the other functions of that agency. But to be clear, that was an agency that was created in the wake of 9-11 to protect us from terrorists. Um, we don't need to be protected from children and families seeking asylum from war, from gang violence, from poverty. Um, We need to uh, be a place of refuge and a beacon of light to those families. That's another priority of mine is making sure these children are reunited. The president is already campaigning against Democrats on the abolition of ICE. Is it a problematic message in some of these districts that Democrats need to win in order to retake the House, that are red districts that might otherwise be vulnerable for Republicans in a year in which the president is not very popular. Do you worry politically in terms of winning back the House, abolishing ICE might be a message that's a hard sell to a lot of Americans? I represent the Massachusetts 7th, and this is an issue of consequence for the residents in this district. This is a district that has 57% people of color and 30% foreign born. So people in this district are living in real fear whether or not they can go to a hospital and get their children vaccinated, whether or not they can drop their child off at school or at daycare, or whether or not they can go to their faith house and worship. So this is an issue of consequence for residents in the Massachusetts 7th Congressional District. I will always lead on and be guided by those issues that are of consequence to this district, whether they are politically expedient or not. And my decision is not one that I arrived at cavalierly. It was one that I arrived at in the way that I do every other decision in partnership and in coalition with families who have been directly impacted by an issue because that's where the solutions exist and also working with advocates who've been on the front line of this uh, like Central Presente, like Mira, like the ACLU, uh, to name a few. Medicare for all. Yes, I campaigned on that and I support that. We again are at a watershed moment when people are using GoFundMe pages to pay their medical bills. So this is an issue for residents in the Massachusetts 7th of consequence, something like 60% of people in the district have a pre-existing condition. Mm. So we have to preserve the ACA, but the ultimate goal is single payer healthcare and Medicare for all. There is a recent study, a conservative study, that shows that Medicare for all would not be more expensive to the government than the current system. But others would say the 
disruption to the economy that would be caused by Medicare for All. You're talking probably millions of employees that are in some way connected to the insurance, health insurance industry. Do you worry about how disruptive a move like that could be to the economy? Well, in order for us to have a thriving economy, you need to have a healthy workforce. So um, I think that's very disruptive that people are, are dying from diseases that are completely preventable because they can't afford medical care. And we know that the money and the resources exist. We have an administration that's talking about Space Force. So, you know, my God, the resources are there and budgets should be a reflection of our values. Um, and healthcare is a basic human right and we have to do everything possible uh, to increase access to it. Impeachment of the president, do you support it? Absolutely. On what He's grounds? proven himself unfit morally and by every legal statute definition uh, where one might be eligible, uh, he has proven that as well. On He's what grounds specifically though? Bribery, um, obstruction of justice, um, um, his relationship with Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin. Um, I think this is a man who's proven himself morally and spiritually bankrupt, given the policies that he's rolled out. So on those grounds alone, I consider him to be uh, unfit. Um, and then certainly within the legal definition, he is unfit. And I would work actively to see him impeached. Last question. Nancy Pelosi as House Speaker. Will you vote for her or do you want to see new leadership? I think that's really putting the carpet for the horse. I've not even taken an oath of office yet. Um, and I would never hire a principal for a school without a clear values and mission statement. I think we need to get beyond the midterm elections, see who's standing. And the Democratic Party is going to have to have a real conversation about who we are. Um, what is our vision for this party? What are our values? What is our platform? And then how are we going to get it done? And once we figure that out, then we can figure out who should be leading us in getting that done. But I think it's a premature decision, not only because I'm not there yet, but also because we need to get beyond the midterm elections. But as the leader of the party for decades now, do you think that she's done a good job. Do you think that she represents the values I, of the people? I think she's done a great job. I credit her for um, the ACA. Um, again, I think our country is at a crossroads and um, Washington is certainly at a crossroads. And the Massachusetts Seventh and our democracy and the Democratic Party are at a crossroads. We're going to have to dig deep and have some conversations about the future of this party. I think we have been in the midst of a bit of an identity crisis trying to reconcile if we are the party of jobs and the economy or of criminal justice reform. But we're the party of both. And these issues are conflated. And, you know, we're in this together. Ayanna Presley, thank you so much and congratulations again. All right, thank you. Our newscasters, our editors all work as an efficient, well-coordinated fact-finding team. Jay Gonzalez. If you haven't heard his name, he will be the Democratic opponent for Charlie Baker in the general election for governor in November. He beat out Bob Massey, the businessman, won pretty easily Tuesday night to become the Democratic nominee. So who is he? John Keller is going to talk with him. He is originally from Ohio, and he served in Governor Deval Patrick's administration. Right. And John pointed out some very interesting numbers surfaced during the Massachusetts primary, interesting things for all the candidates to look at, particularly Charlie Baker, uh, to look deep into the numbers. So here's a very interesting conversation with Jay Gonzalez about why he thinks he has a shot against our current governor. Each day, hundreds of thousands of people pour into the one square mile of downtown, mile of downtown Boston. Jay Gonzalez, welcome. Thanks for having me. Why on earth? It's <laughs> a would good way anyone, to start a question. Would yeah. anyone want to be governor of Massachusetts? Oh, 
it'd be an absolute privilege. It's a hard job for sure. And I saw it up close and personal when I was working uh, for Governor Patrick as one of his cabinet secretaries. But the impact you can have on people's lives, the positive impact, you know, I'm someone who believes uh, government is a positive force. It's the one institution that represents all of us. State government, in my view, has the biggest scope and possibility to positively impact people's lives. I don't know you real well, but I've observed your work and I've been around you and we've had opportunities to talk in the past and you seem like a very calm person. Tell me about one thing that you see going on in our state right now that makes you outraged. Yeah, I think the thing I'm most outraged about is what's happening at the national level with Donald Trump, his divisiveness, his hateful rhetoric, some of the policies, particularly with respect to immigrants, uh, that I believe are anti-American and inconsistent with our values. And what angers me at the state level about it is we've got a governor that in some ways is complicit with it and certainly is not standing up and fighting back as aggressively as I believe we should be. How is he complicit? So on immigration issues, he's he ordered state police to detain immigrants. He opposed Syrian refugees resettling in Massachusetts. Uh, and most recently on June 1st, he committed Massachusetts National Guard resources to go to the Mexican border and help Donald Trump enforce his cruel and inhumane immigration policies, including separating kids from their parents. It wasn't until we put a lot of pressure on him and others did as well that he reversed his decision. But it's a decision that never should have been made in the first place. I mean, we need a governor, in my view, who's going to stand up to cruel and inhumane treatment as a matter of principle and making sure that everybody in this state knows that their governor and their government is there for them. And we need that now more than ever. So you would rather have been seeing Charlie Baker being a scathing public critic of the Trump administration? I think Even more than he has been? So, yes. And, And here's the thing. I know that the governor of Massachusetts isn't going to change Donald Trump's mind and isn't going to dictate federal policy. On the other hand, people are angry and appalled at, at what's going on and scared. And they, people in Massachusetts deserve a governor who at the very least is standing up for our values and interests and speaking out forcefully against the hateful and divisive rhetoric of Donald Trump and the the policies that he's putting in place to try to pull back people's rights. Jay, how is that consistent with what your former boss, Deval Patrick, did as governor when we had a functioning health care connector system under, quote-unquote, Romney care? Things were going along pretty well. In came Obamacare. Mm-hmm. Uh, and despite many... People, Democrats and Republicans, including, I believe, Charlie Baker, pleading with Governor Patrick to seek a waiver from some of the requirements of Obamacare, which included completely revamping our health care connector with disastrous results, he refused to do so. Wasn't that a case of Governor Patrick wanting to go along with an ally and a friend and a policy he believed in? Um, at the expense of good policy back here? Uh, I don't think, I think it was a policy he believed in. I don't don't think there's anything wrong with what Governor Patrick tried to do with the health connector. 
it was the way it was implemented and the vendor that um, failed to do their job. Look, everybody who was a part of the process in the Patrick administration of transitioning from our health care reform to Obamacare regrets the, the, the failure of the system in the beginning and the impact that that had on people's lives. So everybody. should he have stood up and said, listen, you're going to wreck. It's not broke. Why do you want to fix it? We want a waiver. There were, there were a number of aspects of moving to Obamacare that were going to be beneficial. Um, so, you know, this, this is something I think everybody, including Governor Patrick, regrets the way it was rolled out. But it wasn't a failure of policy. It was a failure of implementation. Uh, and, you know, I, I was proud to have uh, been the chair of the board of the Health Connector when we implemented Massachusetts health reform successfully. I left a year before the implementation of uh, the new uh, website. Um, but, uh, yeah, I know uh, everybody who played a role in that regretted the way that that played out. And, you know, that's another lesson learned from the Patrick administration. And there, and there are many. We talked about some on your show before. You said uh, during a debate. Uh, with your primary opponent, that if elected, you would ask the Department of Revenue for options for raising the revenue you're going to need to pay for many of your proposals. Uh, And your opponent at the time criticized you for being, quote, vague Mm -hmm. about how you raise the dough. Are you prepared to get more specific now? Uh, Not right this second. But um, what I said was I'm going to – my – my commitment to the people is, one, I'm being honest about the fact that we do need to raise additional revenue to fix some of these big problems we have that are holding people back. I'm going to do it in a progressive way. So when I said I was going to ask the Department of Revenue to give me options immediately, options for how we ask those who are wealthy in this state to pay more in taxes uh, that we desperately need to fund some of these critical services. Well, you must I have, will you're get, a budget will, expert. I'm sorry will, to interrupt, but you're yep. a budget expert. You were Secretary of ANF. Yep. You must have at least some general so, ideas of so, what areas they could look so at. So I will get more specific over the course of this general election campaign about some of the ways in which I think we should be raising that revenue to ensure that it's coming from uh, those with wealth and we're not asking uh, lower-income, middle-income people who are struggling to get ahead to pay more. We've got a tax structure in Massachusetts right now where those who earn the most pay the lowest percentage of their income in taxes. And I don't think that's right. We also um, – this is another big choice between myself and Charlie Baker. He's going to campaign as he has on no more new money. That's his number one operating principle as governor. No more new money. So where are we? What do we have? What's the best we can do? I'm offering something different. I'm saying uh, I'm going to look at where we need to be and what we need to do to get there. And yes, part of the answer to that question is going to be new revenue. I'm going to be developing plans for asking those who are wealthy in this state to pay more. Well, to me, when you say that, I think capital gains tax, perhaps a value-added sales tax on luxury items. Are Uh, you proposing new taxes, Well, uh, what about those two? (laughs) Uh, Philosophically, how do you feel about those approaches? We will be uh, rolling out over the course of this general election campaign some more specifics on uh, my thinking on this. But um, look, we we cannot afford not to do this. We have one of the worst transportation systems in the country. We have one of the biggest achievement gaps in the country. We're letting way too many of our young people down by not providing them with high-quality education. Uh, we're the most expensive state in the country when it comes to childcare and preschool, which is 
game-changing for young kids and allows their parents to go to work to support their families. There's so many areas we need to do better or we're going to start falling behind and people's quality of lives are going to get worse and worse. And we need additional revenue to do that. I'm going to ask those who are doing very well in this state to pay more. I know a lot of our Studio BZ listeners are listening to us in their headphones while they make their way into work, a lot of them on the MBTA or commuter rail. Uh, You have said repeatedly that you believe this is the single biggest failure of the of the excuse me of the Baker administration, and yet as we've seen since the winter from hell three years ago, uh, when Baker was coming into office, we saw him successfully extract concessions from the Carmen's Union. We saw him uh, get a, at least a temporary suspension of the Pacheco Law that inhibited privatization of certain ser- services. Uh, we've seen them forge ahead with uh, infrastructure improvements. We're going to have new cars coming online within the next couple of years. Uh, what's he done wrong? There are no results. The system is is not serving people's needs. They can't depend on it to get to work on time. And I disagree that we should be privatizing more of the system. This is a core public function. When you separate the responsibility for delivering the service from the elected officials who are accountable to us for making sure it works, you see how that plays out. You lose control. And so when the commuter rail is performing at terrible service levels, which they frequently are, uh, you see Governor Baker point the finger and say, oh, yeah, they're doing a bad job. He's the governor. This is his responsibility. I'm, instead of privatizing more of the system, I'm going to fire Keolis and be the first governor to bring it in-house and managing it directly. If it's not working, I'll take the blame, but I want the control to, to address the problems that exist. And when you talk about the stuff that he takes credit for, like new cars and investing more in the system, that's all because of Deval Patrick. During the Patrick administration, there was an increase in the gas tax. There was an increase in the sales tax and new money to go to the MBTA. And that's when capital investment in the MBTA started ramping up. Deval Patrick signed the contract to buy the new cars. So, you know, nothing Charlie Baker is doing is helping to get us to where we need to be. Like I've said, I'm being honest. We need to invest more in the system. We need to do it now. We need to treat it like the emergency it is. This is affecting people's quality of life in a very real way every single day, and it's totally unacceptable. We haven't had a governor who rode the tea on a regular basis since Mike Dukakis back in the 1970s and 80s. Will you? I will, and I have over the course of this campaign. And the experience is, um, as I said before, totally unacceptable. Uh, overcrowded trains, people who you know, see the, the timer on the clock, say the train's going to be there in one minute standing out in the freezing cold. Libby in uh, JP waits 20 minutes before calling an Uber to get to work. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, is, it is totally intolerable. Jake Gonzalez, thank you. Thank you, John. Okay, millennials and others, you better brace yourselves for uh, an aging baby boomer walk down memory lane. Everybody get your barf bags ready. Here we go. When I was a kid growing up in Cambridge in the 1960s, Cambridge and Boston were considered one of the coolest places, if not the coolest place in the country uh, as a centerpiece of what we called then the counterculture as a place where art and music was being explored in creative ways. I won't 
fry your brain with a list of all the long-since-defunct nightclubs I used to go to. But um, Boston was considered cool. And that leads me to introduce our guest in this segment of Studio BZ. Dan Shea is the director of the Brain Arts Organization, a nonprofit that uh, tries to foster the local independent arts and music community through events, a crowdfunded venue, the Dorchester Arts Project, and other avenues, including the free Boston Compass, uh, an arts and culture guide that you may have encountered in the streets. Dan, welcome to Studio BC. Thank you very much for having me. Good to have you here. Is and I'd love to hear about all those defunct venues, but maybe afterwards. Come on, you're just <laughs> buttering up an old guy. No, I know. It's, no, no. It's I'm a student. I'm a student of all this, so I'd love to hear. I, I w- want to know more always. Well... I mean, where do you want to start? I mean, I went to Club 47 before it was Passines. That's right. As folk, a kid, folk, yeah. riding my bike down a Cambridge Common, uh, getting contact high, I realized later <laughs> on. Uh, you know, there were every Saturday, there were live concerts. I saw Sly and the Family Stone, the Buddy Miles Express. Before In the they, Common? Before they were oh, big, my. just playing f- free shows oh, outside oh. on the Common. That's that was pretty cool. Then, you know, you had uh, the Unicorn. A great venue right down there uh, around the corner from where Berkeley is now. The Channel was a really fun place. Uh, Jonathan Swift's in Harvard Square. Jack's, of course, where Bonnie Raitt, you know, made her name. And uh, there are still great clubs. I saw a great show recently at Toad in... Uh, right outside Porter, Porter Square yeah. in Cambridge. Really great scene over there. And uh, in the Boston Compass, you've got a pretty good, healthy uh, set of listings there. Is Boston and the Boston area still cool in the way that I described? Well, you know, uh, Boston's a large city. So, you know, people, young people come here with ideas um, uh, en masse. So, absolutely. However... Um, in this day and age of uh, uh, many options for people, um, in the internet, video games, um, podcasts, uh, what what have you, um, it's just generally. I, I think it's just a it's a harder transitionary time we're currently in for art makers, music makers to um, to survive. Period. But, I mean, there's also other factors in the city which make it extra hard. So well, it burns brightly, but, I mean, the forces are stronger than ever against, um, the, you know, the beautiful creation. Well, it used to be back in the day that Boston was seen as a relatively cheap place where, you know, you, you maybe you went to school here, you knew someone who did. But then there were cheap apartments to be had in triple-deckers and what have you. There was a, a sort of an underground arts community that could sustain you. And there were a lot of, there was a ready audience for what you're doing. Now... Uh, Boston is in some ways every bit as expensive as New York or close to it, particularly when it comes to finding space to rehearse, to create, to live. And that, I know, is a big issue for you and your organization. Tell me why. If this creation is going to happen, it obviously has to happen somewhere. For, for us at Brain Arts and Boston Hassle, it's a big deal because creation needs space. Space is difficult to come by and increasingly difficult to come by in the city because of the, because of the rents, because of the city being run w- extremely well, much better than other cities, I think, as a business. So, you know, this, you know, this city, 
this um, environment, uh, the creation of essential new neighborhoods um, that are only for the upper middle class and beyond, uh, where there was space uh, for industries that they're bringing in and adding to the already successful industries yeah, here. The, the seaport and Fort yeah, Point come to mind immediately. Yeah. Of course. The seaport is is the worst and most egregious example. And, you know, I could go off for hours on that. I won't. But, I mean, you know, you have Alston Landing over here. Uh, and you have a number of other developments like that all across the city. Jamaica Plain, where I live, certainly, ha- you know, down by Forest Hills. Anyway, all of this is um, cr- making the pressure on uh, available spaces um, uh, that much more pressure, that much more difficult to find affordable space. So we've long said uh, at our nonprofit and even before we were a nonprofit, we're here to stick our foot in the door before it closes completely. And part of our game, part of our gambit as a nonprofit is to provide spaces, provide venues, provide platforms is the term we use, which uh, encompasses our website and our newspaper and our space that we've already opened in Dorchester. And we hope to open more spaces because no one else is trying to. No one else is trying to open up spaces that aren't necessarily for people who are going to rake in the cash, you know, that are for artists. We're talking with Dan Shea of Brain Arts here in Studio BZ. And, you know, how do you do that? Uh, You guys are not rolling in dough. Uh, no, right? we are not rolling in dough. So how do, you, how do you stick your foot in the door, given the intense economic pressure to slam the door right. on arts and artists? Um, well, th- that is our very existence. Uh, how we are doing it, um, we are learning on the fly because none of us went to, unfortunately, well, almost all of us uh, didn't go to school uh, for you know, um, whatever you might go to school urban for. Urban planning. Uh, urban or... planning. We do have one incredible urban planner, uh, Saritha, amongst us currently at MIT. I guess we're sort of DIY urban planners in, in our own way. And the way we do it is by um, talking about these issues, uh, illuminating the problems, and um, we are trying to open up spaces. And we have opened up one in Dorchester. You know, the whole notion that maybe some of our listeners have that, well, you know, uh, uh, art, art and artists, they're a luxury. They, they don't pull their weight economically and economic forces are going to overwhelm them. You know, you, you could drown in the studies that have been done that show the economic multiplier effect of the arts. And again, I hate to keep going back in time here. You can feel the calendar pages Bring turning as I Bring talk. But, you know, once upon a time, Boston was unique in its, um, its arts community and the welcome it had now all over the country. Cities that were once art deserts right. have discovered, from the point of view of attracting tourism, uh, uh, in enhancing property values, increasing the, the life and attractiveness of a community for investment, that the arts are essential. So uh, this is a long-winded way of asking, you know, is it a question of lobbying policymakers and Pauls to do the right thing when budget time goes around? What's the game plan? Um, Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of lobbying, uh, no doubt. Um, We are constantly uh, trying to work with the city. Um, How's that going, by the way? City of Boston you're talking about. Because (laughs) Marty Walsh, when he came in as mayor, made a big deal about how important the arts were to him. They commissioned a a big study. Has, Has that helped? 
we did receive a $15,000 grant um, from the um, Boston Cultural Council uh, last year. Uh, we applied for the same grant this year and didn't get it. But uh, we did get it last year, and that was great. That was for programming. Uh, we got another small BCC grant uh, this year for the newspaper. Uh, I, I find the city to be, you know, not that I, you know, we have had very little face time with um, Walsh himself. Uh, you know, that's to be expected or whatever. Uh, there are people in his administration who um, you seem like they want to be very helpful. They are aware of the issues. What they're, you know, how they're directly confronting the issues, I don't know uh, necessarily. We, we work as an organization to represent uh, and to fight for people who live here and are making art. You know, people who are looking to Boston as the place where they can make their thing happen. I'm a big fan of outsider art, which is art that's created by people who aren't necessarily trained artists. Sure, absolutely. And all, all over the world, it's being celebrated. I was lucky enough to be in, in Spain recently where there's a fantastic museum of Spanish outsider art wow. depicting the industrialization of rural areas and so forth. I mean, it's incredible stuff. Is, is that part of what you're getting at here, that there's maybe a, a resistance to eliciting the outsider artist uh, oh, from no the doubt. neighborhoods but, to come in? But, I mean, I would almost expect that. I mean, yeah. we, we are champions of outsider art. I mean, you know, we love all the kids who go to Berkeley and all the kids who go to NEC, too. We love, you know, they're fantastic. And, and a lot of those groups are making music, too. And, you know, we're practically... We have so many NEC graduates and kids going to NEC right now, like playing our shows. New England Conservatory. New England Conservatory. About, yeah. But you know, they they don't get to play anywhere else. You know why? Because their stuff they're on the edge. They're working on the edge. Um, you know, I'm sure there's some of them who are getting play somewhere. But anyway, I mean, outsider art's a little part of it. But I mean, outsider art is outsider art. The nature of it is it's outsider art. I want to say, you know, where where is the support for the for the modern folk art of Boston? Let me say folk art rather than uh, outsider art. Where where is the nurturing for the development of the emerging artists in Boston? This is the place we exist in, and the place we try to create spaces for and to support. Um, but, you know, where is it otherwise? That is, that's not part of the conversation, like when, when these new art spaces open. Are you optimistic about the future when you uh, look ahead yeah. two, three, five years? No doubt about it. Okay. Because the support for us, um, maybe not from some of the th uh, places that we've discussed earlier in this interview, uh, and not perhaps from some important places, and we opened up our first space in January of this year in Dorchester. Uh, so I am optimistic because I think there is enough support, and I think we have enough of um, we have enough of a solid argument and approach, and a unique approach in the city that uh, we are going to keep working hard. We're going to keep taking every angle, and we're going to get done what we think needs to get done. So yes, I am optimistic. How can people support you? Uh, well, we need major donors, so major donors, get in touch. <laughs> um, but tell, them, tell them where they can do it. We need uh, serious people with serious money uh, to really move our agenda forward. Uh, and you can get in touch with us uh, simply at bostonhassle at gmail.com. Uh, we have a website um, for our nonprofit. It's brain-arts.org. Uh, we run uh, a daily updated uh, uh calendar listings and um, 
uh, art articles and beyond website at uh, bostonhassle.com. And then we also have our paper, The Boston Compass. We also have our own space in Dorchester, the Dorchester Art Project. You can walk in anytime. We Where have, is that? It's in Fields Corner, uh, right on the red line, uh, right next to the Fields Corner Tea Station. And we have two galleries and a theater. Uh, and uh, we are constantly uh, having uh, poets, uh, musicians, performers, artists, performance artists, um, and magicians, a- any means of um, creative uh, performance we are supportive of and we are trying to foster uh, more community for. And uh, in the Boston Compass, you've got a pretty good, healthy uh, set of listings there. So the the scene still lives, right? Yeah, I mean, we're a big city. Yeah. The thing is, you know, are we a big city uh, with the music scene, with the, the creative class that we should have? Well, I would just add to any policymakers that might be listening in that, you know, even going back 100 million years to when I was young, this has been a key calling card for the Boston area, the arts, youth culture, if you'll pardon the phrase, expressing itself in a way that's appealing to everyone. And we know that it it can pay for itself many times over if it's nurtured, if it's encouraged. It, it's arguably the best investment any city can make. And if we're not going to make it, other cities around the country are aggressively doing they're making it. And it. They're going to eat our lunch if we don't keep pace. Uh, I mean, the perception is that they're already eating our lunch, and they probably are. Um, and, you know, I don't know how to fix the housing part of it. But, you know, we're working as hard as we can on the performance end of it and the art studio end of it. We actually have 13 art studios at Dorchester Art Project, too. Fantastic. Dan Shea, Brain Arts, good luck. Thank you so much. So the cost of housing is not only affecting everybody we know who's looking for a first house. Mm. <laughs> you hear from them, they can't find one. Uh, the art scene is going to feel the impact of that on one level, that artists don't feel as though, as John referred to in the 60s and 70s, Harvard Square, Kenmore Square, Somerville, the uh, the old, what, we, what people referred to as the combat zone, even on right. the edges, mm-hmm. had experimental theater. And uh, what's going to happen if Boston becomes so unaffordable that there is no organic art scene that mm. bubbles up. Well, especially when you're just, obviously when you're just starting out as an artist, <laughs> you're not making a lot of money. Right. If housing costs are going the way they are and continue to go the mm-hmm. way they are, you would see probably an inverse relationship between that and arts in Boston. There's a really interesting new report out. We first saw this in BUR, the perils of the luxury real estate boom for Bostonians. Yeah. And there, this study goes specifically into how Number one, how high the cost has gotten for housing in the Boston mm-hmm. area. Number two, looking at where it's coming from. And in a lot of the cases of these luxury high-rises that have been going up, they're it's not even money. necessarily people living in them. Right. These are investment properties. The study looked at 1,805 units with an average price of $3 million and found that a large number of them are held under LLCs. And these are these uh, trusts or shell corporations 
that uh, allow someone right. to buy the property without using their name. So are these Russian oligarchs laundering money, for instance? They, they very well could be money laundering type situations, sure. or it's just a way to invest your money overseas sure. where you don't have to then pay taxes for it in your country. We also are fortunate slash unfortunate to have the situation in the Boston area where you have so many students from around the world at MIT, BU, Harvard, uh, the, the, a lot of families will buy luxury housing here in the Boston area, use it while that child is in university, sure. and then go. Um, so it, it is a very unique situation. And like New York, where housing from the 70s through today became so out of sight, that circle around Manhattan and certainly the other boroughs just moved further and mm. further and further out. Don't you feel like the same thing is happening? Oh, it's absolutely to Boston. Happening. I grew up in central Massachusetts in Shrewsbury, which is right next to Worcester. Mm-hmm. And I can just tell you, growing up there in the you know late 70s and 80s, no one's parent worked in Boston. Your, your, right. your mom or dad worked in the city of Worcester, and you lived in the town right there. Now, <laughs> all of those towns, Northborough, Holden, Shrewsbury, they're bedroom towns for Boston, which I just can't believe. And so I think that the immediate... Uh, areas obviously in De- Back Bay, forget it. Now the seaport, out of sight. Right. We're going to start to find also this real tension between the fact that the transportation is really being stressed and everyone is having to drive into Boston, just Ugh. like it used to be people having to drive or commute into Manhattan from way, way out in the it, greater New York area. One of the shocking statistics from this report is as many as two-thirds of the condos that they studied mm. are not associated with residential tax exemption status, which means either it's an investment property or the person, mm-hmm. you know, they're not, they're not <clears throat> being able to exempt their taxes from it. So it's right. not a primary property or it's an investment property. Mm-hmm. And what happens is if some if a bunch of foreign investors are coming in and paying $3 million a pop on mm-hmm. condos, everyone else's housing costs in that area, of course, Below, go up. explode. And that's what we've seen in Boston. And the converse problem is, for instance, I was reading a really fascinating piece about the Magnitsky Act mm-hmm. with this entire effort to really penalize what's going on in Russia in terms of oligarchs laundering money Mm -hmm. in New York City, and I'm sure now we're going to see it in Boston, where there are empty condo buildings owned by these LLCs. If that money is from Russians who are laundering money and the U.S. government attempted to seize it, if they really do go after their assets, mm-hmm. you could collapse the New York real estate market wow. by yeah. foreclosing on so many people who own condominiums and property in New York. You could cause a true tremor and right. problem in the real estate market. So it is kind of a scary proposition. There's just one example of one, you know, sort of foreign policy disaster <laughs> if we actually chose to act on it. Personal note, you yes. have experience in the arts community yeah, in Boston. Yeah, talking about the arts So scene, have you seen it diminish from the time that you were it's involved just, in the— I guess you can't say, from from my perspective where I was, you can't say diminished. Well, first That's of all, tell people altered. what you did. Uh, when I left Boston College and I had, you know, was working in my early 20s, I was fortunate enough to land this really fun job for a brief period of time with a man named John Platt— who is uh, now a famous Broadway producer. You know him as the producer of Wicked and Mm -hmm. Book of Mormon. And uh, he's done very well beyond Boston. But in those days, he was the operator and the person who controlled the shows that went into the Colonial Theater, the Wilbur Theater, the Charles Playhouse. So any 
national tours that came from Broadway that went through Boston came through John Platt. Mm. And I worked in his office doing, you know, PR and advertising kind of assistant work in those days. And it was very crucial. He could see it that when those theaters were lit, not only were people who are in the Treasurer's Union and the Carpenters and Electricians Union, uh, all those people had jobs. Mm. Crime also went down in the theater district. Mm -hmm. The city would notice crime went up when those theaters were dark. If you can't live in Somerville and Cambridge and, you know, Southie the way people used to who were trying to, say, go perform at the Cape Playhouse in the summer Mm -hmm. or uh, North Shore Music Theater or do some music at um, some cool club in Kenmore Square, which doesn't exist anymore. You know, you talk to all all of them. Bruce Springsteen, The Police, uh, any of those bands of that era, they all played Kenmore Square. They were all at the Ratskeller. They were all at those clubs in Somerville. Um, and they just aren't there anymore. Did you ever sing, by the way? Liam is the alum of many, many plays on the high I, I did stage. a lot of plays. I did do a lot of plays. You I didn't. A I was background. not very good with singing. Yeah. So I didn't do a whole lot of musical theater. I did a lot of street theater. But I did do Jigger Cragen and Carousel. It's pretty good. I did have to sing for that. I was that girl in your high school, you know, <laughs> who, like, you just wanted to groan when you saw her come across the stage. I was leaseling the sound of music and did all that sort of thing. So I, yeah, I was a musical theater girl. But um, no, I won't, I won't sing anymore. <laughs> not in public. <laughs> My poor children have to suffer. You're not going to gonna do the wheel bees every... you with, with, a, with a song? I'll, no. I'll trick it's, you into it. Someday. It's painful <laughs> enough for my children to have to hear me do the raps from Hamilton now. Oh, my goodness <laughs> gracious. <laughs> I can imagine. So, wow, this went really all over the map. We really did. We cover, <laughs> we cover a lot of ground in the BZ podcast, I feel. We are a liberal arts broadcast. <laughs> we can really kind of dabble in a little bit of Except anything. Except in this case, you get your money's worth because we're free. <laughs> this is true. It's not tuition that you'll never get it's back It's not the, the degree that uh, for, you know, philosophy that... Uh, oh, so what do you want people to think of as they leave our podcast this I week. want them to think of uh, listening to us each week and subscribing. And to do that, you can go to iTunes, go wherever you get your podcast, smash the subscribe button. That's what we say. And if you want to check us out on Twitter, we are at Studio BZ Pod. Jonathan populates it with fun pictures of us and yeah. little, little teases of what's going on. And uh, I am at Liam WBZ. I am at Paula Evan WBZ. John Keller is Keller at large. Keller at at Keller at large. Yep. And uh, we want to hear from people. We want you to listen and then tweet us and let us know. We all we're also looking always for a new sign off. No, I no, like our you want to stick with it. Yes, all absolutely. right. It's like it's such a throwback. It's hip again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's dad joke. It type is stuff. It's like a dad. And joke. And if it's dad joke, then I am pro it. All right, here I we go. Ready? We'll be seeing you. <laughs> it's funny every time. You it will really sing is. that someday. <laughs> <laughs>